in, any, in the study of any passage of scripture, there's context. And um, we have a phenomenal context of this, uh, of this passage here. Um, in, the, in the chapter since the stoning of Stephen and including the stoning of Stephen, in chapter 7 of Acts, we have, uh, we have God doing some amazing things uh, to accomplish his plan, to unfold his plan, to accomplish his will, to carry out the mission that he's given to his disciples, to be his witnesses to, in Judea, in Samaria, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in that process, God is doing uh, some amazing things. But he's not doing them the way that we would expect him to do them. Uh, the stoning of Stephen was a, a horrible tragedy. And yet, it is the stoning of Stephen that scatters the disciples and takes the gospel out of Jerusalem and out so they can carry out that mission to the rest of Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's this, this amazing context of what is going on. There's suffering, there's martyrdom. There's um, folks who are, are um, coming to know Christ that are not the folks you'd expect to be coming to know Christ. So the disciples move out into Samaria and the Samaritans, these, these half-Jewish, half-Gentile uh, people are hearing the message and responding and coming to know Christ. Um, and then Philip, on the road, um, meets up with the, the eunuch from Ethiopia. And again, uh, not someone that you would expect. Not in a situation and a circumstance that we would expect, yet God has chosen to, to bring Philip into the the life of this, this man, and uh, as a result, uh, the eunuch is saved. Now, church history, tradition, has it that that eunuch went home to Ethiopia, and um, the tr Christians in Ethiopia trace their heritage, their Christian heritage, back to Acts chapter 8, and Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So we have these circumstances that from, from a human perspective, don't make sense. Um, and that's the context that, that brings us into chapter 9. God saving the unlikely. God doing the unexpected. God operating in ways that we don't understand and we, can't, we could have never have planned. Um, <clears throat> when you preach this, there's two contexts. There's the context of the passage that you're preaching. There's also the context of your own life. And um, through, a through a set of circumstances that I wouldn't have expected, I didn't plan, no one had a plan for it, but there was this sudden need for uh, the, the college where I work to uh, host a tournament, Christian, um, Christian school basketball tournament this week. And uh, one of my good friends, who I haven't seen in a long time, but uh, is the uh, administrator of one of the, one of the schools up in Binghamton. And um, two days before Christmas, his wife said she was feeling tired. She went to take a nap, and she never woke up. And I had the opportunity to spend some time with my friend Darren, and if you will, if you think of it, I know you have lots of things to pray for, but if you think of it, pray for Darren. He took it, she took a nap and never woke up. And uh, for the last 32 years, they've been doing life and ministry together. Um, and everything they've done has been together, and the work they've done has been together. And now he's working in this school. You know, once the kids grew up and, and got married and moved away, um, they were, they poured themselves into that ministry. And right now, he's living in grief. Right now, um, Pastor Stephen used an illustration of, 
of, you know, there's all of you here, and I can see all of you clearly, but if I take my thumb and I put it close enough, I start to not be able to see a lot of you. I lose perspective. And uh, Pastor Stephen talked about in, in terms of sin, how when sin is in front of our eyes, we, we lose perspective on the grace of God and the greatness of God and what he can do. One of the other things that can cause us to lose perspective is grief. And as I did the Job thing with my friend these Thursday and then yesterday, and just sat with him, listened to him share, uh, I was impressed with, with one thing, and that is that, that right now he doesn't have perspective. And, and rightly so. Grief is, is natural. And... Um, it's often unkind and unhelpful for us to try and tell people to get over it, right? It's unkind and unhelpful for us to tell people to move on because it, it takes time and in some ways you never get over it. And in some ways you never move on. But time, time moves and, and you do get a different perspective. That loss, as, as there becomes a little more distance between yourself and that loss, uh, <clears throat> you get a different perspective. And I'm hoping and praying that I can walk alongside him and help him as he walks through that journey of grief and comes to the other side and, and sees perspective. I mention all of that because the church that has left Jerusalem, that's gone out into uh, the world, gone out from Jerusalem and gone out into the world, is carrying out the mission that God has given for them to do, which is to be his witnesses wherever it is that he's going to take them. And, and they're facing a, a, a huge, huge, huge issue that could cause them to lose perspective. And it's related to grief. Saul. Saul, who we're introduced to earlier in chapter 7, is, is, is this man who's involved in the persecution of the church. As we come to... Uh, Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the leading, ruling uh, group of people in the nation Israel. He went to them and asked for letters that he could take to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus is miles and miles and miles away outside of the nation Israel inside another nation, but still. He's looking to hunt down Christians wherever they may be found, as far as he needs to go, outside, just outside of just the nation Israel, but wherever they might spread in the Roman Empire, he's determined to go after them and bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem for persecution and even for death. We can't walk into this passage and not see how horrifying this could be for the believers. And it would be easy for them to lose perspective of the greatness of God, of the greatness of the message that they have to uh, proclaim. And so this morning, uh, we're going to have five takeaways that come from this passage, but I want, you to, I want you to read this story as a story. I want you to hear what's going on in the lives of these people, of these individuals who, and the experiences that they, that they face. I want you to relate to them as a story. And, um, and then we have some takeaways, but up front, I'll tell you, that the main idea of the message is to trust in Christ, trust in the crucified and risen Christ and his sovereign plan. 
Trust in the crucified and risen Christ and his sovereign plan. It is the crucified and risen Jesus Christ that has, has um, appeared to these disciples after his crucifixion and after his resurrection. And he's given them this mission to take the message about him to the world. So that's the, the backdrop, that's the context of, of where, we find, where we find these believers. Verse 2, he asked for letters f- uh, from him, from the uh, Sanhedrin to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Um, the Christians in this passage are called the way. Um, the way is, is a Hebrew Jewish concept, and it has to do with a, a way of life. And uh, the Jewish leaders and Israel up until the time of Jesus Christ had, had a way of life that revol- revolved around the law and keeping the law. And Jesus came to fulfill the law in such a way that that many of the requirements of the law are not to be kept in the same way that they were before. The law needs to be understood in a way that it hasn't been understood before. Because the law pointed to Christ. And so believers found themselves... uh, wrestling with what they should call themselves, how they should identify themselves, what they should think about themselves, and they chose this phrase, the way. Some of you are familiar with The Mandalorian, the Star Wars television series. And uh, if you are, you will remember that uh, there's a refrain that often happens in in those uh, shows. Um, And the phrase is, "This is this is the way. This is the way. And the way is a set of principles. The way is a reality that kind of guides every decision that they make. It makes a difference. It sets them apart from other people. And these principles help them to live and to carry out the mission that they have been called to do. This is the way. And uh, for those of you who are Star Wars fans and, and know that series, and one in the back shaking his hand up there, um, you know, there's a spiritual reality there that we can, that we can relate to because the, the way of Christ is the way. It is the way. Saul is looking for anyone who is the follower who belongs to the way. And he wants to bind them and carry them off to Jerusalem. What a horrifying, what a terrifying experience. An experience where you could lose, easily lose perspective. Oh, God, what is going on? What is happening? How can you allow these things to happen? But there is a, a turn of events. This crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear to Saul on the road to Damascus. Verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think it's significant that, um, well, there's a number of really significant things here, but um, just so you know, this appearance, this experience of Saul gets repeated three times in the book of Acts, here in chapter 9, also in Acts chapter 22, and also in chapter 26. And each time, we get a little bit of different uh, information, we get a little more information about what happened in this experience. In chapter 22, we find out that Jesus tells Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. This, this, uh, the goad was an ox goad. It was a long uh, stick 
or a piece of metal that was sharp on one end, and it was used to, uh, well, the ox was sometimes stubborn and didn't want to move when it was time to plow the field. And you'd take this sharp object and you'd poke him and you'd poke him and you'd make him uncomfortable until he moved. And Jesus says to Saul in chapter 22, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. It's hard for you to kick against uh, the way that I am prodding you and, and goading you to, to move, to repent. Now, it's interesting because what we have in this passage is, is a, a bit confusing. Um, we never read that Saul repented. Those words are never used. The words that Saul put his faith in Jesus Christ is never used. But we see the evidence. We see what is clearly true about his life as evidence because there's a dramatic change. In the passage that goes beyond where we're going to be this morning, it's, it's clear that Saul goes from being a persecutor of the church to one who is proclaiming Jesus Christ so much that he is being persecuted. The same persecution that he sought to bring on the way is now going to be brought on him. And that is part of God's mission, part of God's plan. So there's this dramatic change. And, and uh, so if we're looking for those words, we're not going to find the words that we would use today. There's nothing that's, there's no place where Saul says, now this is the day, this is the hour, this is the moment when I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. But it is clear from the text that that's exactly what happened. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. As you, as you read the, the scriptures, what you're going to find in this vision and in the vision that follows, there are two visions in this passage. Uh, it's, it's, ve it's, it's very reminiscent. It's very uh, similar to other times when God appears to people, when he appears to prophets. Um, the bright light from heaven that appears um, suddenly flashes around him in this passage. Um, in chapter 22, we read that uh, this happens at noon. So it's happening at the middle of the day. And this light is so bright, so brilliant, that it is literally blinding. And it is more powerful than the noonday sun. It is clear that he has a a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And he fell down to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is, this is the beginning of, of what we begin to understand about Christ and his relationship to the church, that there's no separation between those two things. Uh, the church is his body. Paul's going to teach us later on. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You are persecuting me. That's the last thing Saul's going to see for three days. Was this vision of Christ. Then there's the command, but get up and enter the city. And it will be told you what you must do. Think, think with me for a moment about Abraham. <clears throat> God appeared to him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, God appeared to Abraham and said, get up and go away from your family, right? Away from your relatives. Where did he tell him to go? To a place that I will show you. Get up and go. Where, Lord? To where I'm going to tell you. Great. Trust in the crucified and risen Christ and his sovereign plan because what's, what's ringing out in this passage all over the place is that there's a part of God's plan that he doesn't 
reveal to us. This is the temptation that we all face. We want God to tell us what to do and tell us exactly how it's going to go. I want you to do this, and then this is going to happen, and then I want you to do that, and that's going to happen, and I want you. And we want the whole thing from beginning to end all mapped out, don't we? Am I the only one who wants that from the Lord? We all want that. And God takes us on a journey that we could never, we could never imagine and we can't predict. And, and when we try to predict, we're usually wrong. Go to a place that I'm going to show you and, and you'll be told what you must do. And there's so much uncertainty. Think about it. Your whole life is built around persecuting these these followers of the way, and now all of a sudden you find out that they're right. (laughs) You come face to face with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, face to face with God. And now you're blinded. And men have to carry you into the city. The men who traveled with him, verse 7, stood speechless. They heard the voice but they saw no one. The other passages clear, clear this up a little bit. They, they heard the sound, but they didn't understand the words. So no one else heard what the Lord said, but they knew that the Lord or someone, something had been speaking to Saul. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And he led him by the, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. That's vision number one in this passage. We're we're, we're faced with the situation, Saul's faced with the situation where um, it it, it could be easy easy to just be blown away, right, to be overcome, to be overwhelmed. And so in these three days, we find out as we read in this next vision with Ananias that Saul is praying. He is a man who has been dedicated to God. And up up until this time, he understood who God was. But his understanding was limited because there was this new revelation and this revelation was something that Saul received. John asked the question this morning, how many of you have ever seen God? Well, as an 18-year-old, I had an experience where I believed that I saw God. And I don't want to detract from the message because we could go, we could spend the rest of the time talking about that. (laughs) But uh, I had an experience where I believed that I saw God. And for me, it was a life-changing experience. Um, It drove me to the scriptures. It drove me to the Bible. And I, I read the scriptures and I came to understand better who God was and, and what God's plan was and what God was doing in the world. I was having in my life at that time what I would call an existential experience. I was asking those questions. Why am I here? What's the purpose? What am I here for? What does God want me to do with my life? And as God began to answer those questions as I studied his word, it became clear to me that um, maybe, maybe what I, the, what I experienced wasn't God at all. Maybe it was uh, satanic. But the reality that it might have been Satan and it might have been deceptive only heightened my sense of urgency and my sense of the importance of what I had experienced. And 2 Corinthians says that uh, the devil can appear as an angel of light and is ministers as ministers of righteousness. And uh, that was a, a, a sobering thought, but it, it caused me to, to reflect on the importance of what I had experienced and the reality if Satan is real, then God is real. <laughs> if Satan is so powerful as to intrude into my life in this way, then how much more powerful is God? So um, 
to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, what, I, what I experienced caused me to realize that God was working in, at work in my life. And all the people that I knew, all the people around me didn't know him. To whom much is given, much is required. I had a responsibility. I had an opportunity that God had placed upon me to share about him with the people around me. And I was really excited about, about that. And, and as I began to share, just studying the Bible and what I was learning and helping people understand about Jesus, um, it was, it was life-changing for many of them. Many of them came to Christ. In fact, uh, one of them, one of my friends, is a college friend of mine, um, and uh, I remember, uh, I'll tell you his name. His name's Alan. And uh, I remember inviting Alan to church, and Alan came to church with me a number of times, and we talked about the gospel a number of times, but Alan never, hadn't made a profession of faith. And I remember uh, one day, I was spending time with Alan, and the things that came out of his mouth were unbelievable to me in, in, in that they seemed unlike him. It was just vile, it was cursing, it was, it was crude, it was, it was awful. And I was really discouraged. And in fact, I stopped praying for Alan. I gave up. I said, you know what? This is impossible. This just isn't going to work. He's not receptive at all to what what I'm sharing with him, he's not receptive at all to the spirit of God. He's not receptive at all to what God might be doing through the things that God is showing him through the word that he's hearing. I gave up on Alan. And a few weeks later, Alan called me up and told me that he had um, placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And that was a lesson. That was a phenomenal lesson for me. So as we, as we think about this second um, vision, I think we're face, we come face to face with what happens when uh, what seems like it's impossible to us is exactly a part of God's plan. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am. Again, very reminiscent of the calling of Samuel and the calling of a number of the prophets. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go. Those of you that were in Word Partners, um, this sounds familiar, right? Arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah. Arise and go, arise and go. Get up and go. To the street call straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come, and lay, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And he, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But I love the way they Luke uses these words, but, but, although you have an objection, although you have a concern, uh, here's another perspective, Saul. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It seems impossible. It doesn't make sense. This fierce opposition uh, for the believers in, in Damascus. Saul is coming and now he's arrived and he is here to persecute the believers and to take them to Jerusalem to cause them to, as we read later, to, to blaspheme, to uh, deny their faith. even to kill them. And the Lord, again, there's a vision 
For this man, Ananias, he's a disciple. He's a certain disciple. We don't know anything about him. This is the first time we hear about him. This is the last time we hear about him. All we know is Ananias is a faithful disciple. And he's committed to the Lord. Somehow he's heard about Jesus and has placed his faith in him. And now he has this vision to get up and go. But Lord, it doesn't make sense. Lord, it seems impossible. But the Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine. Perspective. Oh, God has a plan. Um, The passage in Isaiah 53 that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when he met Philip, who shared the full knowledge of Jesus Christ with him, he asked the question, who's he referring to? And Philip had the opportunity. The door was laid wide open for him to explain who Isaiah was referring to in Isaiah 53. And, and for him, Philip, for the Ethiopian eunuch to come to Christ. The next chapter... Uh, A couple chapters later, um, God says, for my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. And my thoughts above your thoughts. And then in the following chapter... Isaiah 56, he says, For my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who takes hold of it. Then he says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Uh, The the imagery here is of separation. The imagery is of, of the foreigner. And the eunuch, these people who are, are um, on the fringe of society, outcasts, not the kind of people that you would expect that the Lord, to be con- that the Lord would be concerned about. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. This eunuch, this man who is sexually broken but is someone that God has chosen and is going to be an instrument that God's going to use to take his message to a people that don't know him. The foreigner, someone who's an outcast in society, he's not a part of Jewish society, he's, he's a stranger, he's not part of Israel, yet he is somehow in the land. God says... About the eunuch, to him I will give in my house a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name which shall not be cut off. And also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. He says, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house will be called the house of prayer for all peoples. See, the significance of the eunuch and the foreigner is that uh, they, were, they had limited or no access to the temple, to the place where God dwelt, the place where they could worship, where Israel worshiped. It's the God of heaven. But because of sin, there had been all these barriers to access to the God of heaven and to the ability to worship him, and, and the, the foreigner could, could approach, but only so close. And the eunuch couldn't be on the grounds of the temple. He was cut off from God's people, from God. But God had a plan that was greater than the human plan. So that brings us back to our passage but it's context for our passage because really the, the, the fulfillment of, of 
these passages in Isaiah and other places is, is beginning to unfold. There is a plan for the foreigner. There is a plan for the eunuch. There is a plan for the outcast. There is a plan for the least of these. And God's plan. God says to Ananias, go for Saul, this persecutor of the church. Interesting, something else that I've I've been thinking about. Um, Moses, David, and the Apostle Paul. Between those three guys, you have the vast majority of Scripture. All three of those people were murderers. All three of those men were murderers. Whom God worked in their lives in miraculous ways. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. If we were thinking about who we would have to represent God, it wouldn't be Moses after he killed the Egyptian. It wouldn't be David after he killed Uriah. In fact, after his murder of Uriah and his adultery and his repentance, God says, David is a man after my own heart. It wouldn't be Saul. So the challenge for us, the takeaway for us is to trust in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign plan. As we continue to read the book of Acts, we're going to find that he is going to be an instrument of Jesus Christ to take his name to the Gentiles and to kings and the sons of Israel. But in that process, this glorious mission, you know what's going to be involved? Suffering. Suffering. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There's an emphasis on the name of Jesus in this passage. Actually, there's an emphasis on the name of Jesus throughout the book of Acts. It is that name that makes all the difference. It's that name that causes the Jews to to be so angry. It's two things that cause them to be angry. One is the name of Jesus. And the second is the salvation of the Gentiles. (laughs) In the other stories about Paul as he shares, Saul, as he shares his conversion experience, one of the rulers says, Saul, have you gone mad? Are you crazy? The Gentiles? Really? That's, that's you and me, right? Just in case you wonder. <laughs> that's you and me. It's at the word of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles that caused the Jews to, to want to kill him. In fact, the, the last time Saul, Saul shares his experience and he says he's taking the gospel to the Gentiles, they get so angry and they're so ready to kill him that the Roman officials have to intervene and then Saul has to claim Roman citizenship to get rescued from their hands. And even that allows him to go to Rome, and take the gospel to the head of the empire, to Caesar's household. It wouldn't be the path that we would choose. It wouldn't be the way that we would operate. It wouldn't make any sense to us. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food and and was strengthened. Now, what we don't, again, have is we don't have a, this is the moment where Saul came to Christ. We don't have that. 
We don't have a, a, a description of the moment when Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't know when and how that exactly happened because that's not the point. Uh, there's lots of details about Saul and his vision of Christ and Ananias and his vision of Christ that are left out. We, there's a lot of things that we don't know. So what do we know? I think we know that there is a sovereign God who has a plan, who's working out his plan in the lives of these men, in the life of the church, to carry out that mission that he gave his disciples to take the good news about Jesus Christ, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So here's some takeaways. Trust him even when there's fierce opposition. Trust him even when there's fierce opposition. You may, as a believer, run into experiences and times when when there is fierce opposition to the gospel. Don't give up like I did on my friend Alan. Don't give up. Because things look bad doesn't necessarily mean God is not working. In fact, as the more you read the scripture, the worse things are, the more God's at work behind the scenes. He's not silent. He's not gone. He's not dead. He's not ignorant of what's going on in your life. He still cares. And he's working out a plan that may be beyond your comprehension. Trust him. Trust him in the, in the face of fierce opposition. We don't know what is going to happen in our nation and in our world, and we may face fierce opposition. And what we've faced so far has not been fierce opposition. It's just the fact that people don't know God, and we do, and we have different values. But that's not opposition. When they come for your, for your life, when they put you in jail, when they put you in prison, when they take away your job and your home, that, that's fierce opposition. Uh, trust him by doing the next right thing. What was true for Saul was to obey the vision. Get up and go to Damascus and wait for further instructions. What was true for Ananias and his vision was to obey God and do the next right thing, which was to go and do what God told him to do and lay hands on Saul. And tell him, about God's choice of him to take the message to the world. Trust him when things seem impossible. Lord, it doesn't make sense that you would use this man, this man, Saul. I'm sure the Lord was up in heaven thinking, well, I didn't ask for your opinion. <laughs> and sometimes we have to say to ourselves, you know what? He didn't ask for our opinion. He didn't ask for our advice. Right? And sometimes we want to give the Lord our advice, but it's never the right thing. We, we don't have the right perspective. Trust him when what he's asking you to do doesn't make sense. As I, as I read this passage over and over, the thing that, that struck me most was what's our response to what, God's, what God does in Saul's life? What should be our response to what God has done in Ananias' life, in these two visions? What is our response to, to witnessing, reading, hearing what God has done in these men's lives? I couldn't, couldn't escape the idea that it is our responsibility to trust in this crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign plan. To trust him when there's fierce opposition. To trust him by doing the next right thing, to be obedient to what you do know. Um, thy word is a 
lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And um, the imagery there is that the, the light is right here. And all you can see is the next step. You may not know the whole picture. You may not know where the path is going. And you may want to know where the path is going, but all God gives you is, here's the next right thing. Here's the next step. Take that. And then I will show you the next step. And then I will show you the next step. And then I will show you the next step. Do the next right thing, which is obedience to the thing that you know, even when you can't see the whole picture. To trust him, to trust his risen Lord Jesus Christ when it seems impossible. Trust him when what he's asking you to do doesn't seem to make sense from a human perspective. But his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so he's worthy of our trust. And then lastly, trust him because he knows what he's doing even when we don't. I remember um, when COVID hit and uh, there was this big shutdown of everything. And uh, I remember for me personally, there was this challenge of what I would call the idolatry of certainty. For me personally, I found that Certainty was very, very, very important to me. And without realizing, I had been lulled into a sense of the predictability of life was really important. And when God disrupted the predictability of life, I lost perspective. And I saw people around me who lost perspective. And I remember praying about that and... and and asking God to help me to glorify him in the midst of the circumstances that he put me. I mean, this was, un, you know, you heard the word all over the place, unprecedented, right? We never, had, we never lived, any, anybody else lived through a pandemic, right? Anybody lived through the, the shutdown of businesses and schools and, and everything? And it's in those days that it's easy to lose perspective. When God takes our world and flips it upside down and the things that we expect don't happen and things we don't expect do happen, whatever those circumstances are, it could be grief, it could be sin, it could be unexpected things that come into our lives that we would never have planned and we don't want, whatever it is. Trust that he knows what he's doing even when we don't. We, we struggle with the fear of the unknown, right? But he knows. We struggle with the fear of the unknown, but we know him, and he knows. As I was reading this passage, I was really burdened that we would walk away not just amazed, at the sovereign plan, that is also important for us to do, but that we would respond by putting our faith and trust in him, the risen, crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the, the key thing that the disciples in the early church were very uh, consumed with. He was both crucified and risen, and that is the sign. So, you know, you and I haven't seen God. But what we have seen, what we do know, is about the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the sign that God wants us to take to the world. And it is faith in him that can change everything in a person's life. Saul is, is a, prime, a prime example, but there are so many, more than we can ever count, more than we can ever name. Trusting the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign plan. That he knows what he's doing, even when there's fierce opposition. Trust him when, when we don't know anything beyond the next thing. 
on the path. That light is on our, on our feet. And all we can see is that next step. Let's take that step and follow him wherever he leads. Trust him when what we see or what we experience seems impossible because with God, all things are possible. Trust him when you see what he's asking you to do. Trust him when what he's asking you to do doesn't seem to make sense because it doesn't have to make sense to us. He doesn't ask our advice because he doesn't need it. He created the world. Read Job. He created the world. He created the universe. He created all these things that are far beyond our comprehension. And when we stand and we look at those things, we stand in awe because we have nothing to do with those things. We're so small in comparison to the greatness of our God. So trust him when it doesn't make sense. And trust him because he knows what he's doing even when you don't. I don't know what you're going through today or what you will go through tomorrow or the next day. But I do know that this is what we need. As we, as we you and I, his disciples, followers of the way, take the message into the world that that's the job that he's given for us to do. It might involve suffering. It might involve twists and turns in the road that we would never expect and we would never predict and we would never want. It doesn't mean that God's forgotten you. It doesn't mean that God's forsaken you. It doesn't mean that God's not able. Trust him and his sovereign plan. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven.